Let's turn our attention now to the Word. Uh, speaking of life, look at that. Just what a joy, isn't it? First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 is where we'll begin today. As you're turning there, let me just share with you a story of one of the dumbest things that I've ever done. When I was a kid, I don't know exactly how old, but probably around five years old, I was with my grandparents in Lacine, Kansas. Now, I had kind of forgotten until recently how small this town is, but there's literally not even a grocery store within 30 minutes driving distance of this town. It is in a remote place in Kansas, far from large civilization. And when I grew up there, I remember going to the gas station, and that's back when you had to go inside to pay. And my grandmother went inside to fill up her Oldsmobile, and uh, she was paying inside. And while she went in, I climbed over into the front seat. And I don't know if you remember this, but cars used to have this button that you could push. And if you push the button, it, it would begin to heat up, and then it would eventually pop back out, and you would remove that, and it was glowing red hot. It was designed to light a cigarette. Well, I didn't know what that was, and I didn't know why it was glowing red, so I pulled it out, and I took my finger and seared it. And as my, I, I immediately dropped it, and I freaked out because I knew I was in trouble, and then I uh, burned a little bit of carpet in the car, and then I put it back in the hole, climbed back over the seat, and when my grandmother got back in the car, I distinctly remember her saying something to the extent of... I think there's something wrong with the engine. I'm going to have to get it checked. It smells really bad in here. That was my cooking flesh. Now let's consider the word. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that as we come to your word today, we, we recognize that there is nothing greater than knowing you. Lord, as we just sang, we desire to know you more, and we thank you for making yourself known to us in the word. And we pray, Lord, that you will graciously now guide us to understand the dangers facing the church and how we are called to avoid them. Lord, cause us to be wise. Lead us to be holy. Help us, Lord, to love you more. And Lord, may we have ears to hear now what your spirit is saying to your church today. Amen. As a reminder, the method of preaching that we use here at Gateway is called exegetical preaching. And that simply means that we walk through the Word of God to make sure that whatever the point of the text is, that is the point that the sermon will have. One reason that I believe exegetical preaching is so good and so valuable is that when it is done well, this kind of preaching helps the congregation learn how to be better at going to the Bible themselves. So as I preach, I should be explaining exactly how I've come to the conclusions that I have come to. And you should be able to see a direct link from the words on your page, in your lap, in your Bible, to whatever it is that I am teaching you in the illustrations and applications that are being presented. One of the ways that I study the Word, and I think that is helpful, is to simply query the text. Well, what does that mean? It means you just ask a lot of questions, even if they seem like simple questions. And today what we're going to do is we are going to consider a really heavy text. 
not in terms of complexity, but in terms of the weight of the outcome on the Christian. And as we make our way through this, I want to ask even basic questions here to show you how these simple questions can help you understand what the Lord has revealed in his word. So today, we're going to ask and answer nine questions from this text. They might be simple questions, but I believe the answers are profound. As we do this, we do it because we want to apply the text and we want to live the text. So we want to know exactly what the Lord desires for us and from us according to these verses. Lastly, before we start asking questions, let me show you the sin point of this verse. So all of the nine questions are going to be relating to this. In verse 1 we read, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That is the point of the text. Some will depart from the faith. Every single thing in our text today is explaining or grounding or unfolding what it means that some will depart from the faith. In Greek, this whole passage, all these verses, are actually one sentence with one verb and one primary noun. And that's what it is. Some will depart. Therefore, all of our questions are going to be asked in such a way that is going to help us understand how these various phrases relate to the concept of departing the faith. First, let's ask the question, what does it mean when it says that the Spirit expressly says? Of course, you know, as an apostle, Paul received truth from the Holy Spirit that he wrote down and he sent to various churches or pastors. These writings were given under the inspiration of God himself. We know, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means there is no part of the Bible that is without purpose. Every single word is meaningful, it is true, and it is worthy of your attention. It is also important to be reminded that these 66 books of the Bible are not of human origins. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 helps us remember this by telling us, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The way that I have often described this in the past is like a stick that you throw into the river. When you do that, what happens to the stick? The stick moves along with the river. It says here that these men were carried along like that by the Holy Spirit to pen exactly what was coming from the mind of God himself. That is why it is curious that he would start this chapter with the phrase, the Spirit expressly says. Everything that God says, he says expressly. Every word of the Lord holds true. So why does Paul say it this way? Here's the important thing to understand. Paul is not highlighting this prophecy as more true than any others. He is rather trying to apply it in this particular time and context saying, God has already told you about what you are seeing now. You should not be surprised. You should not be shocked. He is answering a fear that can pop up in the heart of a pastor when someone falls away. Now remember, he is writing this letter particularly to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. And we know that Timothy struggled with discouragement and fear. So it seems that Paul was preemptively expecting Timothy to experience these various things when somebody falls away. And I can tell you from personal experience 
that when someone walks away from the church, when they walk away from Christ altogether, there are questions that I ask to myself. And I assume Timothy would ask these same questions. Was this my fault? Did I cause his departure? Was there anything else I could have possibly done that would have made this person trust Christ or follow the truth? And of course we know, ultimately, it is not that cause. It is not the cause of the pastor. It is the cause of the individual. But this is not the first time or the last time that Paul is going to make this kind of warning. Just consider how Paul addresses the elders of this very church in Ephesus all the way back when he was present with them in Acts chapter 20. This was the final time Paul would see these people in person, and he told them so, and he was tearfully saying goodbye to them. And as he was saying goodbye, consider if you knew this was the last time you were going to ever see somebody and speak to them, this is what he chose to say to them. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's enough if you just say, look, bad guys are going to come. They're going to hurt you guys. They're going to sneak in. They're going, to, they're going to act like sheep, but they're really wolves. That's one thing. But then he says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Look, they're not just coming from out there. They're coming from in the room. It's coming from right here. There are going to be those who turn away and they begin to teach false things. Now Paul is writing to Timothy about this very situation as it's arising or preparing to arise within the church. Some wolves have already come in, as we'll see later on in chapters 5 and 6. And the point that Paul is making is simple. This was promised by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit already expressly said that this was going to happen. Don't be surprised when some depart from the faith. Don't be confused by it. Don't let it shake your confidence. The Holy Spirit has already clearly told you this would happen. The second question that we're going to ask today is, what does Paul mean by the faith? Now, there are some who use this text and others like it as a way to defend the idea that those who are truly born again can then become unborn again. They will say, see, look, some people have faith and then they lose it. Now, I know that people make this argument. I know the various forms of this argument because I used to be one of those people who would regularly make those arguments before the Lord revealed to me in the word. Clearly, that is not what the Scripture teaches. However, I want you to see that is not what's being said here. He is not saying some people will be saved and then they will fall away from salvation. He does not say that anyone who initially trusted in Christ and was forgiven of their sin will then leave the family of God and become unsaved. Rather, he says that some will depart the faith. Again, that is why our question is, what does Paul mean by the faith? This is a simple way of saying that someone who identified them with the truths of our cause no longer do so. The faith is another way of speaking about the particular beliefs that must be held by the church. Consider the way that this same term, the faith, is used in other places. Consider, for example, Jude chapter 1 verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, according to this verse, the faith is something that was delivered one time and was given to all the people of God. That means it cannot be speaking about individual salvation. Rather, the faith is obviously shorthand for the essential doctrines of the faith that Jude is about to defend here through the rest of the book. 
Also, at the beginning of the very book that we are considering, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses Timothy this way. He says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you cannot give anyone else your trust in Christ. You can't pass along your faith to any other individual. That's impossible. But you can pass along truth about those things. There's no such thing as a child in salvation. My kids are not saved because I am. Timothy was not saved because Paul was. When he says that you are my child in the faith, he is telling him that he has given him those doctrines necessary for truth of the Christian life. Paul is going to continue to use that term many times here in 1 Timothy, and each time is referencing a stated profession of a person. Anyone can say that they believe, but Paul is teaching us that not all who say the right things about Christ are actually Christians. Those can present truth verbally and say that they are in the faith, but then display by their life that they don't truly know him. But know this, if Christ began a good work in you, he will carry it out to completion. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. He's not going to lose a single sheep. John chapter 10. However, there are goats who do arise within the church over time, and when we speak of people leaving the faith, it means that they had previously made this profession, but now they have proven by their life and by their evidence of their work, their profession, their testimony is false. The third question that we want to ask and answer here is, what are the later times that he mentions? He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Now there is for many people an unhealthy fascination with, or preoccupation even, with connecting current events to biblical prophecy in order to determine if we have entered now into the last days. Well, let me clear this up for us a little bit here today. Let me just give you the answer. Are we in the last days? Yes, we are in the last days. The answer to that question is yes, but it is yes in the same way that Paul and Timothy were already in the last days when they wrote this book. This exact Greek word for later times is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It simply means afterwards. But we see various other ways that this same idea is used with similar language <clears throat> all throughout the New Testament. Let's consider just a couple times that this idea of later times or last times or last days are spoken about in Scripture by various authors. Let's begin here with the chief apostle Peter. What does he say about this? The concept of last days or later days is actually one that we find a great deal more in the Old Testament even than we do in the New Testament. However, there is one time that there is a crossover where a direct quote about the last days is brought forward by one of the apostles into the New Testament and tells us exactly when these things will take place. We find that in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he quotes extensively from the prophet Joel. And because of the way that the people were speaking in tongues and other languages, the people in the market were like, hey, these guys are all drunk. So Peter says, for those people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Circle that word if you ever are there in your passage of scripture, the word this. The actions you see before you, this speaking of other languages in the marketplace, this 
is what was being spoken about by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be. God promised to pour out the Spirit in the last days. Well, do you have the Spirit? Did they have the Spirit? According to Peter, they were already in the last days. Later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, he adds, He, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Now, according to Peter, the last times were inaugurated by the manifestation of Jesus here on earth. According to this verse, every new covenant believer is living in the last times. Now, let's see what James has to say about this issue. Consider James chapter 5, verse 3. The context is that James is condemning some very wealthy professing believers who have abused their wealth and their power and have not properly cared for the meager and needy believers in their midst. And he says to them, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Why? Why is that going to happen? Because you have laid up treasures when? In the last days. Notice that their laying up of treasure is past tense. They have already done this. When did that take place? During the last days. James claims to be living in the last days. Or lastly, let's consider the author of Hebrews from Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets... But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, think about this. According to Hebrews, we are currently living in the last days because this verse tells us that the time period known as the last days began when God started communicating to mankind directly through the Son. When it was Jesus Christ incarnate, that communicated and revealed the person of the Father to us, or as 1 John chapter 1 would explain it, as the Son exegetes the Father. Now, I've intentionally lingered on this because I think it's really important <clears throat> to avoid falling off the, road, off the side of the road on either side of this issue. On the one hand, it is possible for you to get intensely focused on looking for signs of the return of Christ by observing international politics or the movement of plate tectonics and the explosion of volcanoes around the world or maybe the state of Israel or what's going on in Ukraine or Taiwan and you may focus on those things instead of trusting the word of Christ that nobody knows the day or the hour and that people are going to be surprised so be ready because right now you are in the last days our church here I am more concerned with that second danger the first is that you get too preoccupied the opposite danger is that you're not preoccupied enough with the idea that Christ will return. I am concerned that we are going to forget that we are living in the last days and that, in short, our time is almost over. Whether you are going to live to 95 or 105 or whether Christ returns before I finish this sermon, you need to be ready. Our lives are a vapor and there's much to be done for the kingdom. Remembering that we are now in the last days should cause us to be very serious about the things of God and not so entrapped with temporary or worthless earthly things. So in our text this morning, Paul is not warning Timothy about something that's coming way on the horizon at the very end of the church before Christ returns. He is talking about something that will be happening in the present. He is talking about those who will depart from Timothy's church that day. The next question we have to ask is, how are demons involved in this false teaching? Paul says, some will depart from the faith. How? 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, what teachings is he talking about? Well, what lies beneath the surface of every false religion is a demonic deception and a pursuit of the kingdom of darkness. Consider how Paul writes about the pagan Greek and Roman gods that were being worshipped in Corinth when he writes in 1 Corinthians 10.20, explaining about why we should not go into pagan temples. He says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, these false religions are not merely figments of somebody's imagination. They are cleverly crafted lies from the devil to entrap people. These people were not worshiping God. But there, was, there were Christians who were like, well, if those gods don't exist, then they're just worshiping air. They're worshiping nothing. They're worshiping emptiness. It might as well be a cartoon character. They're worshiping a figment of their imagination. And in a sense, that's true. But what Paul is revealing here is that these people were not worshiping nothing. According to Paul, the worship that they thought was going to Zeus or Apollos or Minerva was actually going to a demon. With that in mind, let's consider a few religions for a moment, starting with Islam. According to the Quran, Muhammad claimed that an angel came down and told him that he would then receive visions from God to write down. And if you remember the story, he then spent the next 20 years writing down messages that were delivered either directly by visions or by this angel that came to him. Joseph Smith, which by the way, he claims to be the angel Gabriel. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, claimed that an angel came to him named Moroni and delivered information to him about the Book of Mormon, and that angel claimed to deliver to him the true word of God. <clears throat> now, the Hindu religion is a lot more difficult to nail down, but one thing that is collectively accepted by their holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, was delivered by an angel or an angelic creature named Krishna who claimed to be the messenger of the supreme god Vishnu. And the Bhagavad means the word of God, and Gita means song or poem. The word of God delivered by an angel to you. This angel or angelic being claims to have delivered the word of God to man. Now, yes, I am suggesting that it is possible that these events are not mythological, but these events are possibly true, and that these false religions are rooted in supernatural origins, just like they claim to be. However, demonic doctrines are not limited to self-proclaimed religion. Evolutionary theory, the sexual revolution, many other causes to which people dedicate their lives are just as accurately called demonic. Perhaps it is more literal than figurative when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But what I want you to notice here is that Paul, in this passage, is not talking about other religions like Hinduism. He is not talking about external, secular theologies like evolutionary biology, notice that the people Paul is speaking about in our text today still claim to be Christians. They bear the name of Christ, 
but they teach lies that originate from the pit of hell itself. So many distortions arise from generation to generation. Today, in the world, we are dealing with easy believism and works-based faith and moralistic therapeutic deism and sacerdotalism and syncretism and little God theology, and the list is growing. And if you don't know what those things are, that's okay, but these things are false teachings that are rising and are common and are prevalent and are more common than faithful biblical teaching in many fronts. The health-wealth gospel, for example, is just as demonic as any false religion that has ever existed. All these are heretical teachings born out of demonic origin. It is evil like this that Paul warns is going to cause many to fall from the truth. The next question helps, helps us think about how this gets to us. How are false teachers involved in the doctrines of demons? What is the relationship between the two? Well, the question, I guess, is how do demons disperse their false doctrines into the church? We know that Satan and his kingdom desires to lie to us. How do those lies come to us and are believed? The answer that Paul tells us here is that they come to us from the inside. They use false teachers. People like T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Eddie Long, Kenneth Copeland. They're just a few examples of people who openly reject the true gospel. And in doing so, they have taught the doctrine of demons to millions and millions of people. Paul says that it is through their insincerity that they draw people in. What does he mean by that? Because generally speaking, no one wants to follow an insincere person. Well, it doesn't mean that their insincerity is something that is evident. Rather, it seems that what he's saying is these teachers look sincere, but from God's perspective, they are liars. They present themselves as people who speak for God, but what comes out of their mouth is death to everyone who listens. And if you have limited discernment regarding Christian doctrine, I would encourage you to avoid so-called Christian televangelists and television channels. Because here's what's going to happen. At best, you're going to turn on the channel and you're going to see a watered-down gospel. At best. But at worst, according to this text, you are going to be hearing the whisperings of Satan through the lips of a mouth that is speaking smooth words with a big smile, but they are speaking false teachings of Christ. The next thing we have to consider is, what is a seared conscience? Paul says that these men and women who are spreading the teachings of demons have a seared conscience. When I was a little boy, I climbed into the front seat of my car, and I cooked my finger. Well, when that happened, what happened to my finger? First of all, it swelled up a little bit, and got red and blistery, and then I lost feeling in my finger for actually quite a long time. And my right index finger, which is one that's actually relatively important in life, if you want to learn how to write well, I didn't have any feeling in the tip of my finger for a while. I lost sensitivity. Why? Because I fried the surface of my skin. Now, the Greek word here that is behind this word for seer, may sound familiar to you, even in English. It is the word cauteriazzo. That's where we get our word cauterize. Have you ever felt this process begin in your life where you sin and the next time it becomes easier to sin in that same way? I certainly have. And the more you do it, the less your conscience resists you until eventually you just pretend that that's a normal way to live, that that sin is just an acceptable way of life. There have been times in my life where I have gone extended periods without dealing with one sin or another, but by the grace of God, eventually, for the Christian, the Holy Spirit lays such a powerful conviction on the heart that the only possible recourse is to repent. Conviction leading to confession, leading to repentance, leading to holiness. These false teachers that Paul is talking about have seared their conscience like a steak on a hot grill, and it is completely unresponsive. 
which causes their false teachers to live in lives that pursue sinful desires. Is your conscience sharp? Are you quick to acknowledge and repent of sin? Or is your conscience dull, whereby you sin without fear of God? You don't even think about it anymore. Or is your conscience like these, as good as dead? Having been seared so often by constant sin, there is no response left. Well, here's the good news. The Bible teaches that your conscience can be restored. In fact, all of us, before knowing Christ, our consciences were distorted. And we believed things were good that were evil, and things were evil were good. That's the story of every person who was ever, ever in unbelief. Well, today I want to speak for a moment to those who are in the room that I don't know your personal state before the Lord, but he does. And if you're here today and you are an unbeliever in Christ, you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, you have not yet repented of your sins for the forgiveness of your soul, here's the good news. The Bible says that you, because of your actions, are far from God. Your sin has separated you from him. In fact, it goes so far as to say you are an enemy of him. And the last enemy that you want is the one who is the most powerful in the universe. And he says that you are his enemy because you have rebelled against him in sin. That is the story of every human being from birth. That's the bad news. But the good news is God sent his own son, who is unlike you, perfect in every way, to die for sinners like you and I, that if you simply believe that Jesus at the cross takes your sin and gives you his righteousness, and if you believe that he rose from the dead, justifying your soul, then you will be saved. You are not saved by works of your hands. You are not saved by giving. You are not saved by baptism. You are not saved by being at church on Sunday, although I love that you're here. You are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, and in Christ alone will you be saved. And the good news is this, and if you are a Christian, you experience this. After your salvation, now all of a sudden, things that you thought were normal you begin to feel uncomfortable with them. You go out with your friends that you're used to going out with, and they begin to tell a joke, and you say, I can't listen to this anymore. I can't laugh at that anymore. I have to separate myself from that because it is now uncomfortable to me. What is happening when that takes place? God is, by the Spirit, sharpening what was once a dull conscience, and he is using that to help you run from sin and turn to Christ. Your conscience may be seared, But if you come to Christ in salvation, you can be saved and God can work in your sanctification by sharpening your conscience. But let's say that you are a Christian. You have been a Christian for a long time and you find yourself sitting in the chair today and saying, well, I am saved. I truly believe that, but my conscience doesn't seem to fight against sin at all. I would say to you, that is a concern, spiritually speaking. If you continue on in sin, with no feeling whatsoever that that is wrong, with no feeling of the Spirit that you need to run from that, that should be a concern to you. And if it is not, that should concern you greatly. What do you need to do in that case? Pray that God would give you a hatred of sin and that God would give you a love of righteousness. Pray that God would help you to run from that sin and would give you a hatred that makes you feel sick to your stomach if you ever approach it again. Find accountability from other people who will remind you of reality that these things are not acceptable and they will lead you to death so that when your mind begins to trick you into thinking once again that it is okay, they will stand by you and say, it is not okay to continue on in the ways and patterns of death. These false teachers that Paul is talking about, they have seared their conscience so much that it is unresponsive, which causes them to live these sinful lifestyles. But the good news is this. To anyone in this room who turns from their sin, God will save, and those who are saved, God will restore. 
it is a blessing of God that we can have our consciences sharpened. The seventh question that we want to ask today is, why does he focus here on abstinence from food and marriage? Notice what he zooms in on here. It says that there are certain teachings of these false teachers regarding marriage and food. Now, there are certainly parallels ongoing that we can make to these prohibitions. For example, how many of you in the church this morning grew up in the Roman Catholic background? I'd say that's at least half. We have so many people here who grew up being taught that if you continue on in holy singleness, dedicating yourself to God, that is greater than marriage. It's considered a sanctifying work to be in uh, either uh, male or female celibacy. It's a path to greater holiness. Also, how many of you grew up with uh, Fish Fridays? What is that? What's that for? Well, if you go back and look through history, it's when the king of Portugal and king of Spain were fighting over who was going to have to buy the fish from Portugal, and basically they bribed the pope to say, well, we're just going to start eating fish on Friday, so now everybody has to pay Portugal again. Well, that's the background of it, but ultimately they're telling you it is a mortal sin. It is a cause for offense against God if you eat this particular food. What is that? It's the same thing that Paul is getting at here. It is a prohibition against a certain kind of food. Now, these two issues that were common in the early church, this prohibition against food and marriage, they're not exactly the same way in the Roman Catholic Church, of course, but we do see a constant focus in the Scripture of these food laws that resulted in a great confusion within different congregations. Considering the church that was possibly hit the hardest by these false teachings, the church in Galatia, the churches in that region uh, that Paul writes to in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, if you want to live under the law and pursue God through food laws from the Old Covenant, then you have to follow all of them all of the time. And for that reason, no one is justified by the law. Believing in the food laws or trusting them to give you some standing with God is condemned. How are you made righteous? Is it by your diet? Of course not. Paul writes in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Concerning marriage, God affirms it in places like John 2 and Mark 10 and Genesis 2 and in various other places. But he also affirms singleness in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. And God leads each person either to marry or to remain single. Neither one is more holy than the other. But there have always been those who seek to claim that there is a special holiness to be gained by refusing marriage. Now in our church, these two false teachings, thankfully, are not an issue. But there are always other ways that pop up that we have to guard against regarding legalism. We must never go beyond what Scripture has taught about the way that we should live. We cannot impose these things on others. We use the Scripture alone to inform us how we are to conduct ourselves. Let's dig into that a little deeper with our eighth question, which is, what does it mean that everything made by God is good? I was once at a, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with a man who was known as a pothead, and uh, he was happy with that designation. He liked being a pothead, and he was claiming that smoking pot had to be fine with God because it was natural. It just grows out of the ground. So, of course, God made it. The Bible says God makes it. 
He sees that it's good, right? Well, the, another person that I was with chimed in and said, well, God also created poisonous mushrooms and hot peppers and rocks, but he didn't intend us to smoke them. Now, listen again to what Paul says. He says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Here, the key word is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. There is nothing that will keep your heart from straying into sin more than a heart of thanksgiving towards Christ. Listen to how thanksgiving plays a role in the opposite process, the process of falling into sin and suppressing the truth, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. There he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but, or rather, or instead of this, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The precursor to idolatry is thanklessness, according to this passage. And the key to enjoying God's creation in a proper, worshipful way is to be thankful for what he has given to you. If you are truly thankful for your things, you're not going to envy the stuff of others. If you are truly thankful for your spouse, for example, you're not going to end up committing adultery. Why? Because you are thankful to God for what he has done in the way he has actually given you that gift. It is impossible to get drunk or to steal or to look at pornography and at the same time be thankful to God. So in this passage, Paul is certainly not condoning sinful activity, saying all things are acceptable to do. Rather, he is commending us to live in thankfulness for what God has given so that we might use those things in a way that is worshipful rather than idolatrous. Ninth and lastly here for our questions is, how does something become holy by the word and prayer? Look at verses 4 and 5 one more time. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Just moments ago, I was explaining how enjoying good gifts of God will never go beyond the proper boundaries if you're enjoying them with a thankful heart. However, in the context of this verse, Paul is actually focusing on the opposite. He's not talking about, uh, he's not talking about <clears throat> that side of the issue. He's speaking about people who were forcing abstinence from certain foods, and from marriage. Both of these are good gifts, and God says you should enjoy them, but you should enjoy them rightly and thankfully, and nobody should call these things evil. So to teach those who had been drawn into being limited by these false teachings, Paul is saying to them that it is acceptable for you to consume that food, it is acceptable for you to be married, and therefore he was rejecting the idea of Christian asceticism. Let me give you an example. Maybe you're in the room today and you are a vegan. You need to let me know if you're a vegan before you come to my house for lunch. Because if you don't, you might be uncomfortable with the numerous animals that are represented on my table. In the case of a vegan, you have made a particular choice to avoid certain food for particular reasons. And that's fine as long as you don't think you're gaining righteousness because of your diet. But what is not fine is for you then you to take that restriction you have placed on yourself and then to go to others within the church and to tell them you are condemned because you eat steak. These people in the Ephesian church were being openly ridiculed. 
if they consumed certain food because those foods were considered sinful. So, so Paul says to those who have been constantly told not to eat those things that they are able to enjoy them under certain circumstances. What are those circumstances? If you eat them in accordance with God's word, meaning you're not eating them to excess, you're not eating them in a way that is you're stealing from others, or etc., etc. You're eating them in accordance with God's word, and you're doing so in a way that is prayerful. But do you want to know a secret here? That's true for literally every gift that God's given us to enjoy. It's not just food. Before you knew the Lord, you were unable to worship him in any aspect of your life. You could not use your skills or your hobbies or your relationships for worship. They were all based around your favorite pagan deity, yourself. But when you became a Christian, it's like the whole world opens up to you. And now you're able to enjoy all things that God created in a way that actually gives him the glory. So if you climb a mountain, you can do so in a way that God gives him glory. If you go fishing, you can do so in a way that gives God glory. If you were typing on a computer in a cubicle for eight hours a day, you can do so in a way that gives God glory. Isn't our God kind that he permits us to enjoy things and to work for him in ways that he has made? And he, we can do so worshipfully. Nine questions, nine answers, one sobering truth. Some will depart from the faith. Now, we've all seen this happen, and just like Judas, someone is going to seem to walk with Christ for a time, and then they depart, and they're going to turn aside to false things, and over the coming weeks, we're actually going to be digging deeper and deeper throughout this whole chapter into the warnings and commands regarding how to live in light of this sobering truth. But today, I want to just pray for us, because just like Paul says, some may arise from within, and some who are within will depart. So we are going to pray that God would protect and preserve everyone in this room, that our profession may be true and our testimony may be revealed to be accurate based upon the way that we live. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you keep your sheep. Lord, I ask that if there is anyone in this room that is not currently saved, that you would open their eyes to the gospel, that they would believe. And I ask that you would keep every professing believer in this room from departing from faith. Lord, help us to live according to our calling. Help us to stand firm in the faith. Help us to obey you and to love you and to live for you. And God, I do pray that you would protect us from any of these false teachings that are mentioned here. That you would protect us from any that would arise from within the congregation or from without. That you would protect us from the teachings of demons. God, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us the ability to trust you in all things in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.